you are listening to The Cumberland Road, and I'm your host, TJ Melanoski. My guest for this episode is Reverend Dr. Ron McMillan, Cumberland Presbyterian Minister. In our conversation, we cover a large swath of different topics. We talk about Ron's faith, how he come to know Christ. We talk about his calling in the ministry, what retirement is like and his challenges that come with it. We talk about preaching styles and his hobby of writing a novel. My friends, I hope you enjoy this faith conversation with Ron McMillan. Ron, we talked on the phone uh, prior to this conversation, and you had mentioned retirement. I think this is a great place for us to start our conversation. Um, So can ministers retire, and what does that look like? Are we allowed to retire? Well, yes and no. (laughs) As a friend of mine tells me, I give retirement a bad name. By that, the person means I may be retired, but I'm not retired. Now, kind of give you some background. Uh, I'd had two heart attacks, and I wasn't able to pastor like I felt one should pastor. And I took that as a sign that God was ready for me to move on. Now, while I've moved on from senior pastor, I haven't moved on from ministry. I don't think you ever do. If you have a calling, as the old quip is, uh, uh, retirement's not in the Bible. We've all heard that. Well, in a way, that's true. Uh, You know, uh, I still pastor. I fail pulpits. I love that. Uh, I'm interim at the Bolivar Church right now, but... Uh, I really just enjoy filling pulpits most of all. Yeah, I would think that the your approach to ministry, your practice to ministry changes uh, in your vocation, but the calling is still there. It's just going to look different. Oh, without a doubt, sure. But isn't that the way life is? Different times in life, we minister in different ways. We we are different people in a lot of different ways. So, you know, when I was young, I did a lot of youth ministry. Uh, I was a youth minister off and on for four years. And then when I took my first pastorate, I, I spent a lot of time with youth. Uh, when I was 50 years old, hey, uh, uh you know, crawling around on the floor with a bunch of kids playing, uh, uh, what is that game where you, you know, uh, Twister. Yeah, yeah Twister. Yeah. No, not going to happen. <laughs> Arthritis is going to make sure. So different times in life are different different things. But I very much enjoy uh, meeting the new people, uh, uh, filling the pulpit. Uh, I really enjoy that. It's a great time. But uh, on the subject of retirement, let me give a word of advice to all my friends. I have several friends retiring in the last year or two or getting ready to retire. Have something you want to do. Uh, When I retired from Holly Grove, uh, they had a big celebration, all this stuff, you know, a cake, the whole bit. 
uh, invited people back from my former pastorates. I didn't have that many, but several of them. And uh, so that was on Sunday night. Monday morning at 10 o'clock, I sat down in the back booth of a uh, Burger King with my laptop and began writing my first novel. I had no idea it was going to be a novel, but I had been an avid reader my whole life. And as any reader, you think about a plot and you think, well, I wouldn't do it that way. I'd end it here. He rushed the ending, this kind of stuff. And so I would, in my mind, think of a different way to do it. You know, it's just, just something to think about as you drive or something. So I had this idea in mind. And during my second heart attack, I was in intensive care, and I asked the nurse for a piece of paper, and I began writing out a plot. What are you doing in intensive care? You know, uh, I kept that, and when I retired, I just thought, I want to get it out of my mind. I want to exercise this idea, and so I began to write. The more I wrote, the more I wanted to write well. I began to read books on writing. I began to go to uh, uh, writers' groups. I began to go to writers' conferences. And it's become a great pleasure for me. So my point here is find something you want to do. It is your chance to remake yourself. Do something that expands who you are. Uh, uh, Where are you in that novel? Oh, well, I'm on my third one now. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, none of them published. I have published two short stories, one in an anthology, and one will come out in something like January, February, March. They haven't told me when, on an online magazine. So I've done that. And I'm talking to some people about publishing. Uh, but you have to understand, uh, publishing is quite different than it used to be. Uh, people don't realize that. While there are hundreds of imprints, that's the name on the back, spine of the book, there are only four publishers in the United States. Uh, there's five, but number five is being merged with number four. So for all intents and purposes. Uh, in I don't know about the United States, but in Great Britain, in England alone, not Great Britain, England, there are over 500,000 novels submitted to publishers every year. Mm. And how many do they publish? Uh, uh, three or 400, maybe? 500? I don't know. But you are... <laughs> I often tell people you are much more likely to be hit by lightning than publish. But that's why Amazon has changed the whole thing, and that's why publishers are dying. The publishing industry, as we knew it 20 years ago, is just about dead. Uh, uh, because if you publish with uh, one of the major ones, if you are a major writer, you might get 10% of the net of the book. That means if they send it to Barnes & Noble, for $8, you get $0.80. Cents. But they don't pay you that $0.80 cents until uh, the end of the year. Whereas if you go with Amazon, 
they pay you 70% and pay you every quarter. So your professional riders are all moving toward Amazon. Yeah. And uh, hopefully somebody else will uh, will rise up to compete with Amazon because it, it, I just went to Las Vegas to a big one, uh, 20 books, and uh, Amazon was there. They had a huge table and everything, but they are the, uh, you know, 600-pound gorilla. They just sit anywhere they want to, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and so we really need some people to rise up and compete with them. Right, yeah, you yeah. need that competition. Yeah. Uh, but there's an advantage there because y- you can print on demand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So it will be interesting to see how that changes the yeah. book publishing industry. It's so much easier now for an author to be able to go and experiment oh, on yeah. their own yeah. uh, than it was 30 years ago. People don't realize that there are t- over 10,000 subgenres on Amazon. Good grief. Over 10,000. Uh, Blue Ridge Conference, which is the big uh, Christian writers' conference. Uh, Realm Makers is the big... Christian science fiction and fantasy conference, but but Blue Ridge is your big uh, uh, Christian gen, general Christian, and uh, they were 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 talking about ten thousand different subgenres. Uh, you know, people like to say I was bestseller on Amazon. What you do is you write to a subgenre where there's only three or four different books in it. <laughs> And okay. then you have your friends buy the book, yeah. and suddenly you are a bestseller on in, Amazon. In it that means genre. absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay. But but people enjoy saying it. Hey, I would if I ever got it, I'd do it too. But you know, hey. So that's how you become a bestseller on Amazon. Got it. Okay, I understand now. If you can see, it has become a real love of mine. Yeah. Let's talk about <clears throat> let's talk about retirement a little bit. What if, Ron, an individual's identity is wrapped into their vocation? And in our case, it's ministry, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And then you have to retire either by choice or health or circumstances. What advice do you have? Because that can really, really shake you if who I am is, especially in ministry, if who I am is my faith, and my calling, and then I'm no longer fulfilling those callings, those responsibilities, what path would you advise to um, avoid, I don't know, some very dark days, I guess? Sure, yeah. Well, you have to be ready to retire, and... uh, you know, you have to, you know, and each person gets there in a different way or a different place. But I was ready to retire because I couldn't minister the way I wanted to. I didn't have the stamina. I've always been a 60-hour-a-week uh, pastor, you know, uh, in the hospital five days a week, that kind of thing. Uh, while, on the other hand, wanting to be a uh, a fairly good preacher, so you uh, you could see and feel, yeah, the that you, what you were bringing to the table was changing. Yeah, I I was I was frustrated 
in that I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And so if I couldn't do it right, I didn't want to do it. But other people find it a different way. But you have to find, you have to be ready. You've got to think about it for several years, get yourself psyched up to it, and then have a plan. Uh, the absolute worst thing you can do is just sit. Uh, it may be travel. Uh, my wife and I have traveled quite a bit. One of our biggies was uh, we swapped homes with a couple from Tenterden, England. I've always want. I'm a big history guy, and uh, I've always wanted to live in a little village in England. So I got on one of the websites where you swap houses. And I found a couple that wanted to come to Memphis. Why? I have no idea. I, I wondered if they might not be big Elvis fans, but they never said. And, and uh, so we went to England and lived there for three weeks. Mm. Uh, we would travel two, uh, two to three days all over England, uh, went to Scotland, went to Paris, all of this, uh, and uh, then we would come, we'd rest for a day. I would go down to, they don't have main streets, they have high streets there. Main street is called high street. And they love their coffee shops. And I would sit in a coffee shop and talk to all the locals and just chat about this and that. Or when nobody's around, I'd write, write on a novel. And uh, then Nita would come down, we'd have lunch in a different restaurant. She'd go back and I'd find another coffee shop. And I, I had, it was a great thing. I loved it. Uh, one of the biggies was that I got connected with an archaeologist that was doing a uh, tour of Stonehenge. And so we went with an archaeologist to Stonehenge, and it, it was great. Yeah. Well, let's start with your faith. Okay. Was there a time when you didn't you didn't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, of course with everyone there is a moment of of uh, uh of surrender. But as I was preparing to come to this, I was thinking about something. And the main spiritual event in my life was something I had virtually nothing to do with. Uh, and I've only shared this maybe a half a dozen times in 75 years. Uh, it's something very, very personal, and I, I, just, I just don't share it. Uh, but I felt led to do it today. Maybe it's because I'm getting old. Uh, to a point where I feel <laughs> I won't be able to, you know. <laughs> 75, you know, it's only a certain number of days. But uh, I was what was called a blue baby. Today, people don't even understand what that means. Yeah, what is a blue baby? Okay. What it is, there is a little flap in your heart that before birth, it lets the blood circulate without going through the lungs. At birth, it closes up and, the, and forces the blood through your lungs. Mine didn't close right. And so 
I would have these episodes where I just wasn't getting any oxygen at all. I'd turn blue. That's why I called it Blue Baby. So this was 1947, 1948, and my parents later told me they took me to a specialist in Kansas City, and he said, you know, that if I lived to be six years old, they would do one of the first open heart trans uh, open heart surgeries they'll ever have ever done if I made it to six, which most of them didn't make it past two or three. Few did, but they were very sickly. Um, so they brought me home and laid me on the bed, they told me, and they prayed and gave me to the Lord and said that if, uh, if God would heal me, they would dedicate me to the Lord. Uh, now, were they practicing Christians? Oh, yes, yes, very okay. strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my, my grandfather was pastor of my home church. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, big time, yeah. Uh, and so from that day on, I never had another episode. Never, you know. And uh, anybody that looks at me can't believe, you know, hey, he almost died at one years old. Uh, but they didn't tell me. But they decided that would be too much pressure for a child. And so they just simply kept me in the church all the time, you know, anything so that I would be available. And I was at Bethel and uh, felt led at the first CP church there in McKenzie to surrender to the ministry. And when I called my folks that night and told them, they began to cry. And they told me for the first time what had happened. Of course, I'd known I was a blue baby, uh, but I didn't know the story of, of that. So in a way, I, I, I had that from, from nearly you know, birth, but, um, I accepted the Lord at six and a half, something like that. You know, my grandfather was our pastor. Dad was an elder. My grandfather, McMillan was an elder, you know, the whole bit. Uh, uh, and you grew up in a church in Missouri yeah. and correct me if I'm wrong. There's a congregation there. You'll be able to help oh, me yeah, with the name that, um, the, the organ is, Almost the centerpiece within oh, the yeah. sanctuary. Yeah. So uh, I've uh, it been was there. Put in in eighteen eighty something, if I remember right. Yeah, let's. T I, this is kind of a sidebar. Yeah, but let's sure. talk about that for a minute because sure. it's. Uh, I've been there one time. It's a congregation. It's a sanctuary that actually has a balcony on two sides. Mm -hmm. um, but how do they get this huge organ in the middle of the sanctuary? Did they build the building around it? No. I, of course, I don't know for sure, but my understanding is that the organ was put in uh, several years after the... It, it's a German organ. Uh, if you go in the back of it, there, there is a metal uh, uh, holder where the uh, wooden handle went on, and the boys of the congregation would pump the organ. Wow. You know, and, the, and then, of course, in uh, later years, they put in an electric blower. Uh, but, yeah, if you will look in the ceiling of the, uh, of the sanctuary, which is very, very high, there are hooks, and those hooks had pulleys on them, I'm told, and they would lower the, the chandeliers to light the gas 
lights, uh, the, the kerosene lights, and then pull them back up. And the hooks are still up there in the in the ceiling. Yeah. So you grew up in the Warrensburg Church, mm-hmm. and your grandfather was the minister there. W.O. So, Wayman. So talk about those those years of running around in the church and having access to it and just kind of growing up in that atmosphere because not a lot of people have that opportunity. Not I a lot of people have that experience. When I was five and a half. My mother was, uh, was on staff, and she said, to be able to come, I have to bring my child. And so they gave her a cabin off to the side, and I remember playing in the little stream down there, catching crawdads. Uh, so I started church camp when I was five and a half and never missed a church camp until I was up in my 40s. <laughs> That's a pretty good record. Yep. <laughs> All right. You had mentioned um, attending Bethel College. Yeah. Now it's called Bethel University. Um, what, before your calling to ministry, what drew you to the school? What plans did you have? What ambitions did you have? What was your first thought of career? Well, I had no idea really what I wanted to do. Uh, I actually wanted to go into ministry, but didn't feel I had a calling. And so uh, later in in my college career, I, I felt a internal calling, I guess you would say. Uh, uh, one of the things which many of my friends would not uh, uh, perceive about me is I had in my junior high years, I had a horrible, horrible inferiority complex. Just just incredibly bad. <laughs> and uh, one of the great events, yeah, you wouldn't, wouldn't think so, but yeah, yeah, I did. And so the idea of me preaching to anyone was just an anathema. Why would anyone want to hear anything that Ron McMillan would say? Well, later I found out they really don't care to hear anything Ron McMillan wants to say. They want to hear what God says. And so, you know, uh, I try to stay very close to Scripture because it's not about me. It's, it, it's about what God says. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was something I struggled with. My mother used to say in uh, my latter, uh, in my, my 40s, she would come and hear me preach and she would say, I don't know who you are, but you're not the boy I raised because I had such self-confidence and, and uh, uh, I was a strong leader, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, in my junior high years, uh, I, 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 I had no confidence at all. What was the turning point at Bethel? I mean, you said oh. you had the internal call, but you didn't respond to it. What changed? Well, I, I've... It was during a denominational uh, uh, day service, and Reverend Forrester, who was the pastor in those times, uh, Edna Jean, you remember her, uh, he preached on call to ministry, and, and I really just felt, this is what God wants me to do. And I went forward and so on. Just that nudge you just that needed. Nudge. You needed to because hear because there was nothing I ever liked more than just being around Christians. Uh, 
you know, I, I just, when I was around Christians, I just felt at home. Uh, I, I, I just didn't enjoy uh, the secular world. Uh, the, I, I love, you know, the world as much as anybody else. But uh, that's where I felt fulfilled. That's where I felt at ease around Christians. And so I want to be around Christians. Yeah, I, there is. There's a comfort level, and it, it's even a, maybe a safety net because you know that there's common ground. I would, I would go to the common ground more than the safety net. For example, going back to my, my uh, uh, writing, I go to several different writers' groups, but two of the bigger ones, one is a Christian writers' group, but frankly, many of them, though some of them do, don't take their writing very seriously. Uh, but then I go to a secular group, and uh, they take their writing very seriously, but I don't enjoy the people as that much. You know, they just have different wants and desires for myself. And so I've often reflected on the two groups. I really enjoy the people in the Christian group, and the people in the secular group are fine. I enjoy them too, but I don't feel as at home. It's just, you know, I'm a Christian. I like to be around Christians. So you receive the call, accept the call into ministry yes. while you're at Bethel. Yes. Then what happened? Uh, I still had a lot of that inferiority. I couldn't believe anybody would want to hear anything I had to say. Mm -hmm. So I went my first year to MTS, and in looking at the catalog, I saw that the Presbyterian School of Christian Education uh, would honor that first year, and I could, I could transfer. And so I transferred to Richmond. Uh, it's now part of Union Theological Seminary. It's no longer a separate institution. And uh, uh, did a master's in Christian education, then came back, uh, finished uh, my MDiv, and uh, God had other plans. I had envisioned myself going into Christian education, but he immediately thrust me into the pulpit. Uh, I will say this. I never preached a sermon I liked until I was 40 years old. Mm. I always felt I always felt it there was more to you know uh, to learn. There was more to understand. And uh at about 40, uh, I guess I passed a kind of threshold and decided it was at least adequate. Yeah, let's let's go deeper. What is what do you mean by liked? As in like satisfied with what the delivery, the content, everything. You know, uh I still don't think I'm a good uh, a good preacher. Uh I don't believe I have the uh the get, spiritual gift of preaching or evangelism. I am a teacher. God has given me a uh, the spiritual gift of teaching. So if you listen to my sermons, while there's an evangelistic component, uh, uh, there is a strong teaching component to it. Uh, it it's mainly a lesson in a lot of ways. Uh, do you know the difference beside, be, between teaching and preaching? 
Okay, here's what I've decided for me. Teaching is to inform. Preaching is to persuade. Hmm. The purpose of the two are quite different. And so I have a strong sense of, of uh, teaching because I think that's my spiritual gift. Yeah. Now, what they have in common is they're both sharing... They're both sharing information. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But their purpose is different. Uh, in a Sunday school class, you want to persuade, but your main purpose is to inform. And then the information will persuade. Uh, in preaching, you want to inform, but you have a goal in mind. You want some good preaching always has a component of this is what I want you to do. And if you don't do yeah. that, people will realize that sometimes they'll leave a service and they'll say, oh, that wasn't a very good sermon. And it may be you didn't have a purpose. Yeah, an evangelistic sermon requires a response. Sure. A teaching sermon, pastorly sermon... Those can be more passive because you're conveying information, and the minimum mask is the listening ear. Yeah. Uh, but people want you to tell them in a sermon. That's why a lot of people have problems. They don't realize people want you to, to tell them something they need to do different in their life. Uh, You need to be more loving. You need to be more compassionate. Uh, You need to reach out to the unsaved. There's always a purpose in that. Now, an evangelistic teaching might say, okay, here's how you share the plan of salvation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Now, you might even say you need to go out and practice this, et cetera, et cetera. But a sermon would say, you need to do it. There, there is a component to that. Spending years on... Of course, that's just for me. Right. Everybody's got a different way to look at it, and that's fine. But to me, that, that when, I'd say that's what changed. Before 40, I was just teaching. After 40, I began to say, this is the response you should have. So not only would uh, your style of preaching would convey information, but it would also be, it'd have a sending element. Yes, to there'd it be a sending well. element. Yeah. 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 Uh, it wouldn't just be the concept of love. It would be the admonition to love. That would be the difference. Yeah, and giving giving concrete examples as well, contemporary concrete examples help guide, I think, um, the listening ear. So to be able to take a, a concept like love or discipleship, those could be pretty complex. Sure. And to be able to persuade. Right. <laughs> Uh, on a level to where you have various levels of listening and attention and but also sending I think people out with encouragement as well. I don't think I could take 
uh, sermons where um, you're wrong, and this is where you're wrong, and this is where you need to change. I don't know if I could well, handle that every say, week. I say you're wrong, but I would say, you know, that's why I mentioned staying so close to Scripture. Uh, uh, if anybody says that's Ron McMillan's idea, then I failed. <laughs> you know, right. uh, I, 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 uh, I preach a modified form of expository sermons, if, if you, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I call it modified because I always begin with a parable because Jesus used parables. Uh, I draw it from life, but it's a parable. I use two or three different people to, to create the story and I always end with a question. How, to, how do you love the unlovable? And then I would go down and I'd, I'd do three or four points. Now, the reason you usually end up with three points is that's just about all you can cover in the time period. It isn't, there's nothing sacred about three points, but if you go to five, you haven't really covered the points, you know. And, and so three is just about all you, I, I used to wonder, why three points? And I thought, oh, that's just about all the time you got. You know, so. Right, right. The attention scale yeah. starts mm-hmm. to dip down as right. each minute ticks right. by. Ron, you were saying earlier that your your educational pursuit, those earlys, was Christian education. Yeah. Before you were pulled into the pulpit, so let's go back. What were you thinking in terms of Christian education? What did what did you envision that ministry to look like? Well, I envisioned uh, the regular staff person type thing. Uh, uh, I, I've still enjoyed teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I still to this day do. Uh, uh, before you could join Holly Grove, uh, you had to take a theology class that I taught. It was called The Twelve Things Every Christian Ought to Know. And uh, it was kind of my—it uh, it, it wasn't a membership class. We had a membership class that was totally separate, and that was later. But uh, anyone that came into Holly Grove had to take a theology class. How important is education oh. In, oh. in the Christian faith? I think that's one of the problems in tomorrow, today's faith. Is I like have, it today and tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and tomorrow, yeah. Uh, uh, we have lost that element of teaching. Uh, people can just come to uh, uh, preaching. Well, you what you end up with either you have a Sunday school class at 11 o'clock or you have a sermon that they have no real basis to understand what you're saying. Uh I, I think Sunday school is the lost uh, component that's really hurt the church. We do not have an educated, uh, e- we've never had a really educated uh, laity, sadly. Uh, that's just, just one of the givens. But today we have an ignorant, totally ignorant uh, laity. How, uh, do, how do we shore up from your perspective, uh, the corners there that that um, and provide opportunities for Christian education. One, what would it look like? And I guess in, in the twenty first century, in two thousand twenty three. But and two is, what steps do you envision that would help? Well, help I, that I along? think I've got to rewind a little bit and go back to something else that we haven't talked about. 
All right. And that is the basic problem we have in our society today is the secularization of our culture. Uh, uh, and that's not just our culture. It is a worldwide secularization. And people simply don't feel they need God. Uh, and so whereas we grew up in a culture that just assumed you needed God uh, 50 years ago, uh, you might resist that, you might not agree with it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but it was part of the culture. Now you've got to start before that. Uh, uh, you've got to begin further back and create an understanding of need for God. Mm-hmm. And then it builds from there. Now, as going back to your question about teaching, I think we've got to get serious about it. Uh, too much of our teaching is fluff. Uh, uh, you've got to get really, really serious. Um, as I said, I don't consider myself a... Uh, a good preacher. There, there are much better preachers in the CP Church, I can assure you. Uh, uh, but I am very serious about it. Uh, my sermons always address a specific problem. You know, how do you, how do you love the unlovable? How do you uh, 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 deal with uh, with the uh, the person? Uh, in your congr- in your uh, family or whatever, you know, that uh, uh, hates you, you know, whatever, you know, these kind of things. But I do it in the context of that, that sermon. It's not an arbitrary thing. And uh, uh, so I, I look at the Scripture and I say, what question does this Scripture answer? And that's after a lot of research. I mean, you know, I do my exegetical research. I, 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 I three commentaries, maybe four. Uh, uh, I used to, when my Greek was better, outline the Greek. Uh, uh, frankly, uh, after fifty some years, uh, that has has uh, deteriorated, shall we say? Uh, Others might say it's totally gone, but, you know, I'll, I'll claim a few words here and there. But uh, I still outlined my sermons, uh, did a lot of research. Uh, every sermon went through three to four drafts. Uh, what I've realized is that I always have been a writer. And uh, uh, so I write a manuscript, but I know it so well, most people don't realize I have a manuscript. But I've thought through every idea. Uh, you know, I often think of it as in beating the words into submission. You know, every word must be the right word that conveys the right meaning. And so I just pound on the words until they submit. <laughs> yeah, I, I bl- in my sermon preparation, well, each word has meaning and, and has weight and depth and the placement of it. And I agonize over that in sermon preparation mm-hmm. and in, in my writing. And um, I can't think of a finished product that I've been satisfied with. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> that's been one of the great things about retirement. Uh, when I said I, at 40 I liked my sermons, I mean I felt they were adequate. 
Uh, but in retirement, filling pulpits, I've gone back and taken the uh, the ninety five percent sermons and uh, rewritten them and preached them three times. I find that about after three times, it's a pretty fair sermon. Mm-hmm. And so I've enjoyed that. It, it's been fun to take uh, some sermons that I've, uh, uh, you know, one that Larry Bagby, my great friend, always loved my sermon, What You Gonna Do When Onesimus Comes Back from the Book of Philemon. And it deals with what What are you going to do when people that you were should stayed out of your life came back, you know. And so uh, uh, and uh, uh, I used an almost uh, African-American style uh, in that one because I kept pounding at the end of each point. I ended up, what you going to do when Onesimus comes back? Larry Bagby loved that sermon. And so I went back, and I rewrote it, and I rewrote it, and it's a halfway decent sermon now. As my grandfather used to say, even a blind hog finds an acorn every once in a while. Every once in a while, I have a fairly decent one. I have to with writing articles, magazines, mm-hmm. and sermon writing, there has to be a point to, for me where I just have to let it go. Yeah, yeah. I just have to let it go. Yeah. And um, Well, one of my I writer find, coaches... I, I find that difficult. Uh, ...has a tweet, uh, T-shirt. I, I, I hired a writer coach to, to teach me in writing. And uh, sh- April, always she had this T-shirt that said... It's a draft until you die. Okay. (laughs) You know, you never get it. There's always one word you'd change. There's always a comma you would take out or add. So, you know, uh, you have to get to a point to say that was was just pretty fair. Tolerable, I think. Tolerably good. Is the word that I use in my head is I, I can tolerate this writing. I can tolerate this sermon mm-hmm. and its delivery. You throw in the delivery, then there's a whole nother thing. Oh yeah. A whole yeah. nother element. Well again, I'm not a good preacher. <laughs> I'm a teacher. So, you know, I never have felt my delivery was that great. So we we were talking about your studies was Christian education and you finished your studies and then you thrust it into the pulpit ministry. So let's pick back up there. Okay. And- uh my first, I pastored a little uh, Presbyterian church uh, while I was in, I came when I came back to uh, MTS, and then I left there and I went to the Batesville Hopewell Church. Uh, great pastor, loved those people, still do. Love to go back there. Uh, was there four years. Then I came to Eastside, and uh, it was an urban church. And uh, east side, just for context, Memphis, yeah. Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, right smack dab in the middle of the city, totally different from what I'd been doing before. Uh, I think one of the great several things that happened that were very influential, I began a reading program. Uh, like everybody else, when I left seminary, I was tired of studying, you know, so for the first years, I just pretty much coasted. But when I went to Eastside, I realized I need to get back into it. So I tried to spend an hour every morning reading. Uh, I read uh, uh, the Christian Institutes. I read uh, 
Bunyan's uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I read uh, 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 all of that stuff, you know, you know, everything from the church history on. Uh, and so I did this an hour a day for 20 years. And I, I think that probably had more to, to do for my ministry than anything else, except for one thing. And this may sound kind of strange, and there'll be some people that probably take exception to this. But when I went, came to Eastside, I realized there was going to be a Billy Graham crusade. I'd seen it on television, the whole bit. And so I thought, that's a learning experience. And so I, uh, I went to their headquarters and volunteered and got involved. And people don't realize what goes on in the crusade. They assume that the crusade is what they see on television. It's not. It's kind of like an iceberg. 90% of that thing is underwater. They send in the team two years ahead of time into the community. Uh, I remember every time I went to a, an event, they gave us a book. I left the crusade with a shelf two and a half feet long full of books they gave me. Uh, uh, I was uh, a counselor. I was up in the stands. People don't realize how that happens. Uh, I was captain of the group in each section, and when a, an inquirer, they don't call them decisions, they call them inquirers, because half of the people come for no not for salvation, but they have a bad marriage, they have a crime in their past they want forgiveness for, all kinds of stuff. It's amazing. And so I would send a counselor down behind them so that when they got there, there was somebody standing right beside them. Uh, and then I worked in the co-labor corps, which if you come forward at night, by noon the next day, the church nearest to you is told, you come, you came forward last night, and the, the ministers are, have already been contacted and have agreed that they will contact that person by supper time. So it, 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 and it was quite a different experience, and uh, uh, I really learned a lot about organization and, and uh, how to handle things, and then uh, it got me involved in another group called the Navigators. You've probably never heard of them. No. Uh, they came. They were a ministry to the Naval, Navy in San Diego during World War II. That's why they were called Navigators. And they're uh, probably... Uh, they're a very interesting group, but I, began, I became involved in their discipleship program. And my wife and I went for two years. Uh, basically, it was how to have a quiet time, how to witness, how to uh, read the Bible, all those things, you know. And uh, those two things led and changed my life a lot. How long were you part of the uh, Billy Graham crusade? Oh, well, of course, it, 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 they, they come a, two years ahead of time, have the crusade, and then they stay for a year after. Uh, after the crusade, I, I pretty much wasn't involved. Uh, because uh, I had to get back to pastoring a church. <laughs> right, right, because the, the, as an organization, it relies on the volu local oh, volunteers. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, and you're right. What you see is just a tip. Oh, yeah, it, it, it's nothing compared to what's really going on. 
Okay, so you were talking about a reading program. I wanted to ask you, only faith-based material, Christian material, or would you that that hour a day would you spend at reading? Um, all Archie, that hour was almost Archie all comics or Spider-Man but, or. But I am a big reader. I mean, you know, I am an avid reader. To this day, I keep a book in the back seat in case I have ten minutes someplace so I can read. You know, I, I just that's just me. I read everything, and uh, you know, I read the back of a cereal box at you know uh, three or four times before we're done. <laughs> you know, uh, I just read. That's just me. Yeah. So you're at East Side. Started the reading program. Got involved in Billy Graham Crusade. And then the navigators. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, then what? Okay. Well, that began my personal growth, and and you know I kept up the reading program for twenty some years, mm-hmm. uh, and I to this day I still read a lot. Uh, but I also read uh, my my leisurely reading is science fiction. I love science. I love history, and uh, those two go together. Uh, and so uh, uh, I read all the time. Uh, even to this day, I will read uh, a history book every month, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. How long were you at Eastside Cumberland Presbyterian Church? All right. Those poor people had to put up with me for 18 years. Where did you go after Eastside? Uh, well, I went a whole 36 miles north to Tipton County. Uh, it was a rural slash suburban church uh, because uh, uh, while it is a rural county, it's very much a suburban county in a lot of ways. Uh, and uh, I was there 17 and a half years. My first Sunday, there were 110 in worship. Uh, my last Easter, there were 583. So it was, uh, that's very unique. Most people, their greatest ministry is in their younger years a lot of times. That's where they see. But mine was very much the latter years, which I've often reflected on. God does what God does. You had mentioned earlier uh, around the age of 40 is when you became more comfortable with. uh, How did that play into this timeline of Eastside and Holly Grove? Uh, It was the last... Five years that I was at Eastside, mm-hmm. uh, and I I felt at Eastside I had just done all I could do. Eighteen years, I, I you know I did not want to leave. I, I I I hated leaving. I mean, I I had people that I was marrying that I had baptized as babies. You know that kind of thing, uh, uh, and so. Uh, you know, I think my last years at uh, Eastside were some of my most fruitful in a lot of ways. Uh, another big event in my life was uh, I had a member join Holly Grove that was big in the Emmaus community and it encouraged me to go an Emmaus walk. And it is not like anything you've ever been on. It is totally different. Uh, I became heavily involved in the Mayas community. I always love being involved with Christians other places. I, I love that. Uh, and just uh, completed 
four years as the community spiritual director of the Memphis Emmaus community, which has 500 members, uh, 5,000 members in it. it it's, it's a big community and uh, loved every minute of it. Uh, I still do talks at, at all the walks. And so, you know. Ron, what do you think the greatest gift he received in ministry, both from the East Side Church and from the Holly Grove? And we'll do this double-sided. So what do you think the greatest gift you gave to those congregations as a church leader? And what do you think that you received from both of those congregations in your time of service? Uh Eastside taught me how to be an administrator. I wasn't, you know, people often uh, uh, thrust me into administrative situations nowadays, but uh, I never was good at it. I wasn't good at it, and so I had to teach myself to be good. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eastside was a uh, a real refiner's fire. Uh, and so I learned tremendous amount of things at East Side. It, it, they, they were great people. Uh, they uh, uh, wonderful people, loving people, uh, kind people, but... Uh, 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 it was an urban situation and demanded totally different skills. Right, because you had come from a more rural area right. of Mississippi. No, uh, Arkansas. Uh, Arkansas. Batesville, Arkansas. And um, so there was that change. You, so you had, you had a learning curve then. Oh, my. Tremendous learning curve. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know... Any success I had at Holly Grove is 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 credited to East Side. My experiences there, in terms of giving to East Side, as a church leader, as a minister, what do you think the greatest gift that you gave to that congregation at that time? I was a good pastor. I I, I loved my people and. Uh, 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 spent hours pastoring. I think I, uh, I think I was a good pastor. Mm -hmm. I, I, I tried my best to be a good pastor anyway. <laughs> so it wasn't for lack of effort. Yeah. You know. <laughs> right. Uh, now I, I may have been lacking in other skills earlier in my ministry because I went at 29. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I was still relatively young in my ministry. Uh, but it was there that uh, that I probably honed all those skills. Mm -hmm. oh, we'll move to Holly Grove. So what do you think the greatest gift you gave during your time of ministry there to them? And then what do you think they gave you? Uh, I think I gave them the gifts of what Eastside taught me. Mm -hmm. But most of all... It wasn't what I gave them or they gave me. It's what God did. Uh, that was just a unique and outstanding ministry. It was, wasn't 
totally different, you know. Uh, uh, and so when I got there, it was almost like God said, okay, let's do something. And it, it's just amazing what that little church has done. Uh, it's not so little anymore. It, it, it's the largest church in West Tennessee, I think, uh, Presbytery, or the cornerstone now. Uh, I still haven't got that in my mind. Uh, but uh, uh, I think God just showed up and showed out. It was just incredible what God did. <clears throat> uh, you know, here's this little church in the country, uh, cows on three sides, literally cows on three sides, and people began to show up and things began to happen, and, and I just kind of enjoyed it. Looking back across your life, who do you think has greatly impacted your faith? Oh, without a doubt, my grandfather, W. Wayman, who was pastor most of my life. Uh, he, he laid the groundwork. He was a great pastor. Uh, uh, I think he was a good preacher, but I was so young, you know. Uh, but he taught me things. I remember uh, sitting in his lap as a child and him reading Bible stories to me. And frankly, almost all of my Bible knowledge is based on those stories, like everybody else, you know, uh, uh, all the different stories, you know, Joshua and Samuel and and David and all of those people, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, he and my grandmother and then, of course, my grandfather McMillan uh, taught me how to be a farmer. I was a farmer. Uh, uh, started driving the tractor at 11 and a half years old uh, in the field and... Uh, 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 my last year, last summer on the farm, my grandfather retired and my father and my parents had moved because his job took him to a new place and I, I farmed the farm for a whole summer by myself. So I, I like that. But uh, they were very important to me. Uh, but I'd say faith change, uh, 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 faith foundation would be W.O. Wayman. But also, I can't not, not mention uh, Robert Forrester who, uh, and uh, uh, George Butler, uh, George E. Uh, there's a George A and a George E, and this George E. Uh, he was my pastor after my grandfather died, and so George was my first pastor because I... You know, he was my grandfather, too, you know. Uh, then uh, when I went to college, uh, Robert Forrester. And then my first experience in ministry would be James Ransom. I was the summer worker uh, with youth at the Cleveland uh, Church uh, for three summers. And James Ransom probably taught me more about this is how you do ministry. Mm -hmm. You know, just watching him. And so those were very instrumental in my life. We have people that listen to Cumberland Road. They're kind of stretch all over the, the globe. If you were to describe a Cumberland Presbyterian to somebody you didn't know, what would you say? What makes 
a Cumberland Presbyterian, a Cumberland Presbyterian. How would I know one if I met one? Whoa. Now that is an interesting question. A Cumberland Presbyterian is reformed, a member of the reformed faith, but also a uh, That's difficult. I don't know. We'll come back to it. Okay. I'll let you think about it for yeah, a minute. Yeah, I'll think about that a while. Because <laughs> that, you know, how do you, yeah, yeah. What is a Cumberland Presbyterian? Right. Yeah. Yeah, what makes them unique? Yeah. It's a, uh, a people of faith. Uh, one thing to realize is that the Cumberland Presbyterian Church is a frontier church. It's always grown on the frontier. Uh, its growth began with the frontier, and if you will look statistically, when the frontier in the United States closed, the growth of the CP Church stopped. We are a frontier church. Uh, well, then that means we were a frontier church. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's part of our makeup, and if I was going to say, what do we need to do, it would be find a new frontier. Hmm. We thrive on the frontier. Uh, that may be why our missions program is, is, is flourishing so well right now. It's a new frontier. We are a frontier church. But also another way to look at it is we are the first truly American expression of Presbyterianism. The Presbyterians had such strong European roots, and still do, uh, in a lot of ways. But the Cumberland Presbyterian Church is uniquely Presbyterian, but American. It, it, it was an expression of the American character. We can't build our identity on what we were 200 yeah, years yeah, ago, though. I agree. Yeah. Uh, but what I'm saying part is of our we identity. have a culture. Yeah. And out of that culture is we need a frontier. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not arguing with you. Yeah. I'm just saying I think we need to shake it, yeah. shake ourselves a bit and go, okay, that's part of our identity. Right, yeah. But uh, we can't live in the 1800s. No, 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 no. Uh, you can't recreate the past. You can't even recreate the uh, the 1950s or the 1980s. You know, we, it's a totally different ball game. Uh, uh, one of the things people are always surprised about me, I think, is while I am very conservative theologically, practically I'm very progressive. Uh, uh, I am open to just about any ethical and moral way to share the gospel. Uh, and if that means the internet, if that means, you know, uh, whatever, you know, uh, uh, I feel we need to be very progressive on this. The, the, the Bible doesn't say you can't use the internet. It doesn't say, you know, uh, and where we're going, if I knew that I'd be the president of a seminary somewhere. 
you know, I'm just as lost as anybody because we are in such a new world. Uh, One thing to recognize is one of the issues I think before us, I mentioned secularization, but the other is isolation. Uh, I was reading or listening, I've forgotten which, to someone who was saying uh, uh, in the year, uh, don't hold me to these figures, but I think it was 2000, uh, I had the general idea, a person, average person in the United States uh, spent 18 hours a week with family and friends. In 2020, the average was 12. Hmm. We are becoming an isolated people. And that was before COVID. So that not, it's not a COVID issue. Uh, but we, I think people are becoming very lonely. Yeah, I'm wondering if that isolation takes into account the connection through technology. Or if the parameters were based upon, we're in the same room together um, with a family member or coworker or right. a friend, colleague, whatever it may be. I wonder what those parameters are. I, I don't know. It was just a comment uh, that a, a, a commentator of some kind made somewhere. I don't even remember where, but I was struck by the, the illustration. What do you think that isolation brings to us just as human beings? I fear we are becoming a very harsh society. I have experienced in the last few months more road rage <laughs> than I have probably in the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and I, I personally attribute it to that isolation. People are no longer people. We, we don't really treat them as people. Mm. Uh, and I think this is a great issue in our society. I really do. And the world is at large, I think. I, I'm wondering if there's the isolation, and I spend a lot of time in my head or by yep. myself, that the temptation is to think that the world revolves around me. I'm taking this to the extreme. Right. Mm-hmm. So anytime somebody cuts me off, oh, how dare they, you know, in, in terms of driving or traveling. If if I think that everything, I don't mean that necessarily like a, a selfish little child or anything, but it, in terms of if everything's accessible to me on a phone or computer or television or it's pretty in, right. immediate and, and it's aimed at me, right. I'm wondering... I'm wondering if that plays into it as well. I'm just raising questions. I think you are. I think you're right. So, uh, so from from the faith community, the Christian faith community, experiencing possible isolation, how do we, I don't want to use the word combat, but how do we celebrate the times that we have together? How do we ease ease back into less isolation and more in the company of one another. Right. Um, And let's just focus on the Christian community, faith community, because I I, think it could branch out from there. I think one, we've been kind of dancing around an issue, and that is how is the church going to respond to the secular culture we're in? You know, this kind of thing. Uh, 
and which is the core of kind of what we've been talking about here. I don't know. I'm not that wise, but I I do think that we've got to begin with needs that people have, and I think one of the great needs is is uh, uh, not just fellowship but intimacy. Those are two different things, uh, and uh, so I think one of the things the church needs to do is really stress those those experiences of of true loving fellowship yeah we were talking off mic i think we need more of this yeah more just spending time sharing time together same room having a conversation faith conversation yeah and raising questions sometimes we don't have the answers to them um joking being self-aware going deep um Risking becoming mm-hmm. vulnerable, uh, I think we we need to be more intentional in creating those in in I large agree. and small groups. It right. could be two people, it can be eight. Right, um, that helps break the ice isolation, mm-hmm. I think. But it also challenges, um, oh, our, I think our self perceptions. Uh, of ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, that mm, I'm not the most important person in the room. Exactly. <laughs> well, you play a video game. Uh, you are, are, I'm not a big video game person. Uh, frankly, I've stayed away from it because I think I would love it too much. <laughs> I think I, I, knowing my personality, I would spend hours in it when I should be doing yeah. something else. So I, I yeah. have not played much. But the guy behind the controller becomes the central actor. Mm-hmm. And so it feeds into that idea that I am the center of the world. I think. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, but you know. Yeah. But there is a risk. Yeah. I can see how we, uh, it, uh, without maybe even recognizing it, just as human beings, slipped into a little more isolation. Um, but it's a risk. It's sure. risk to to hop in a room with a group of people. I, I'm not talking about just health. I'm just talking about as in being in the presence of people that may not think your jokes are funny or or look at the world differently than you. And if I, I think we need more more of that though, and to run to run those risk. Um, well, if you read the people that talk about it. For example, people say things on the internet to each other they would never say in person. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. horrible things, just yeah. horrible things. Yeah. And I think that's bleeding over into our culture. I mentioned that road rage kind of thing. You know, we treat people now in the world in the way we taught them, uh, have learned to, to treat them on, on the internet. I, I, yeah. I, I've often said that uh, somebody wouldn't post that or type that uh, or, or say it in, in the room to me or to another person because you run the risk of getting your nose smashed in. Yeah. So then what does that say about the one who is posting and yep. typing? Um, I don't, maybe we just need to be daring to be in one another's company. I think so. Uh, you know, you gave me the opportunity to do this over Zoom, and 
I didn't want to do that. I wanted to look you in the face. Right, right. Now, that's partly my age. <laughs> you know, I'm going to recognize that. I'm 75. I grew up in a face-to-face culture. Right. And uh, uh, one of my grandsons, his best friend is a gamer that he plays games with who lives in either Washington, Oregon. He's never met him, but talks to him every night. You know, different world, different world. But I think we need that face-to-face because you're humanized. Yeah, yeah. It would help It would help us um, as human beings, uh, Christians. Totally Cumberland, agree. Cumberland Presbyterians. What hopes do you have for our church, Ron, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church? I've often thought, what is the role of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church? And I've decided that the role of the small denomination is to be the experimenter. Large denominations find it hard to change, uh, find it hard to, to maneuver. But we should be, shall we say, the Petri dish of Christianity. We should be the one that's willing to try different things. Uh, for example, I'll go back to the missions. I'm just in awe of your group. And uh, uh, the, I, the concept of being a world church, which is, I believe, what you're, you're, you're moving toward. Uh, that is an amazing idea. Do you realize, I don't know of any other denomination that thinks that way. Uh, uh, the Presbyterians <coughs> think in terms of state churches, you know, uh, a, a Liberian church or a, uh, 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 a Brazilian church, uh, but we're thinking about a world church where we are one. That is a very, very challenging idea, and I'm excited about it. I really am. I I, I look forward to the missionary messenger every month. Uh, uh, though I must admit, I I uh, 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 am so busy, I have to force myself to read it. You know, I'm like anybody else. I have all kinds of things to do and. And, and and all this, but I, I discipline myself and say I need to know what's going on. I think it's very encouraging to think of our denomination as, as experimenters. Yeah. I think that could work at every level. Yep. I think the local congregation, of course, is the best case scenario. You know, with the new church developments, um, they really shine in that way because everything you do is, is an experiment. And the ability to be able to try it, and then if it doesn't work, and let go of it quickly because you don't have the baggage of, of 100 years or you know 50 years, right. um, being able to relocate, even change the times that you gather, there's so much freedom and having the ability to, to experiment. I think what could lead us as a denomination and as a Christian community is that local level of, of not being afraid to try new things. Yeah. Now, uh, of course, from my 
theological background, I must say this. I think that while we are very progressive in how we act, we should be never, never deny that kernel of the gospel truth. Mm. Uh, that's very important to me. Uh, while I may uh, uh, do something very avant-garde, uh, uh, it's always based on the gospel. Our our church mission, you know, in our confession of faith, it's to witness. So yeah. everything that we are doing should be, you know, coming to the pinnacle of sharing the good news that Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Yeah. Um, our confession of faith says it many times. Right. So I, I think that's there is, there's your litmus test is, is this witnessing whatever this is mm-hmm. or not? And that's where the measurements yeah. should be. And that's I, the kernel. From my perspective, that's the kernel of, is this the witness or isn't it? Right. And I think the witness is very much not so much being that harsh, uh, 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 are you saved, brother? It's got to come from them recognizing there's a change. Uh, if you go to the Holly Grove Bulletin, uh, it at least the last time I was there, I'm so busy now preaching, I, I don't get back much, uh, but uh, uh, it it has something. I gave an offhanded comment, and it became kind of the uh, the the theme. Uh, one Sunday, I just offhandedly mentioned, you know, Holly Grove, the place where Christ changes hearts and lives. That's on their bulletin now. And if you were going to ask me what is the secret to Holly Grove's growth, it would be Jesus Christ did this. It's not about me. It's not about them. It's Jesus did it, but. The way he did it was he changed so many lives and the community saw lives changed. They wanted part of it. They saw this. And uh, uh, Peter and and Debbie are doing a fabulous job. I, I, I'm, uh, uh, I just can't praise them too much. Peter is just a wonderful pastor. Uh, Debbie is just the best associate pastor you could possibly ever had, though uh, I just feel very proud I had part of her life, you know. Uh, uh, one of the great stories there is that when she, uh, uh, her kids came to a youth event, I greeted her, and her first words out of her mouth was, I've already got a home church, you know. Well, now she's the associate pastor at Holly Grove. Uh, great, great story. But uh, uh, we have got to change lives. It can't be superficial. It's got to be down to the very foundation. And if we do that, that's going to be attractive to people and they'll come. And that requires trust. And trust takes time. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ron, what are you reading right now? Oh, what am I reading right now? Uh, Well, uh, right now I'm reading a murder mystery. Uh, As a writer, 
one of the things you do is you read all kinds of genres. So, so I've subjected myself to a really weird, uh, popular uh, murder mystery. Uh, but then I just finished a, uh, uh, a book on uh, uh, World War II. And uh, before that, I, 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 there's a series on the kings of England that, uh, that I was reading. And then, of course, I keep science fiction books going all the time. What's your favorite favorite book? Oh, well, I met David Weber, which means absolutely nothing to many of your listeners. But if you're science fiction, he is Mr. Science Fiction today. He's written 90 bestsellers. And I got my picture taken with him two weeks ago. Uh, what's your favorite book of his? Oh, well, the, the, the series, the Honor Harrington series. Okay. You know, it's just... You know, fabulous, fabulous. Uh, uh, and a, a friend of mine uh, writes with him, and uh, they were going to write a co-author a book. And before he could uh, uh, write, start writing, Chris had to read uh, the 120-page Bible that he'd written, which is a Bible in writing is the backstory that you need to know about every character, how the world works, all this kind of stuff. And so before he could even write the first word, he had to read 120 pages. <laughs> Chris was blown away. <laughs> all right, Ron, do you want to take one more crack at the question, who is a Cumberland Presbyterian? Okay. We are a unique Christian body dedicated to Jesus Christ and proclaiming his word. That we are a work in you progress. Know. A work in progress. <laughs> Who knows what we will be in 100 years? Who knows? I would love to see it. I won't. At 75, I won't see it except from heaven. And uh, I'll be excited to see. Yeah. Ron, I appreciate your time. Well, thank you for asking me. I've enjoyed our time together. Hope I didn't ramble too much. Thank you, Ron. Okay. I want to say thank you for making Cumberland Road the podcast that it is. For the wonderful guest, for you, the listener, for sharing, for following along, for telling others about it. It's encouraging to be able to hear one another share their faith and to share it with others. In closing, read from the Confession of Faith for Cumberland Presbyterians. All who are united to Christ by faith are also united to one another in love. In this communion, they are to share the grace of Christ with one another, to bear one another's burdens, and to reach out to all other persons.